Good morning. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, like Brandon said, my name is Jeremy Jernigan from Arizona, Podrishner out there, and it's been great uh, to spend weekends with you. I've been up here, I think it's my fourth or fifth time, and uh, I've met so many people all around the United States that, that are uh, connected to this church. So it's just so fun to be a part of your community. And, and I don't know what you come in here with today. I don't know as uh, you're watching this online, maybe what's going on right now, but we all come together. We gather in all different states of, of life, right? Some of us are having great days, great weeks. And some of us are, are, are just dragging ourselves in here. And that's the beauty of, of the church together. When we gather together, we all just get to meet each other in that place and, and experience God in the midst of that. My week started on an interesting note. Uh, about a week ago uh, was the Super Bowl. And uh, my wife and I watched the Super Bowl with our family. And, and I had this realization. Um, we have four little kids, six, four, three, and one. Uh, we don't get invited to Super Bowl parties anymore. I don't know why. I can't figure this out. But uh, we just don't get invited because evidently people don't want four little screaming children running around while you're trying to watch a game. And so uh, we decided, okay, we'll, we'll watch it in our home. We'll have a great time. And, and, and we don't watch a lot of TV. But this was one where like, hey, you know, it's kind of a big cultural thing. We'll watch it. And, uh, and, and so we just, you know, asked our kids, like, look, you can play, whatever. This is one thing we're just going to, to try to watch. And our kids, I think, sensed weakness in us. They knew that they had us because they, we wanted them to be quiet. We needed something. And so they all decided to revolt together against us. And, and when four of them unite together, it can be pretty overwhelming. So they were just crazy running around so loud. Uh, we couldn't even pay attention to what was going on. And, and so we kept uh, using the timeout system. But the way we were trying it was we would pick a different one of the four to put in timeout and see how that would affect the other three. You know what I mean? So it's like, all right, you, you time out for a little bit. Let's see how the other three do it. Oh, you're so crazy. All right, let's switch it. You know, you're going to be in timeout for a little bit. Let's try the other three. And we kept trying this, and it, it was just craziness uh, while we attempted to watch the game. At one point, uh, my six-year-old is sitting next to me, and uh, we're watching the game. He's in the timeout spot, you know, sitting by dad. And I watched the game, and it was in the last few minutes. And, and again, if you watch the game, kind of a, a tense closing to the game. And, and at one point, they called a timeout. And, and my son leans over, and he goes, Dad, why do they have timeout too? Son, their timeout's a little different than yours, you know, but, uh, but it's just something uh, just crazy about that, and, and that's our world, and yet my wife is out here with me this weekend. We're having a great time. This is like vacation to us. Uh, it's like in the 80s back home in Arizona, so we actually get our warm clothes out to come visit you guys, and it's, it's a lot of fun. So great to be with you guys. I want to share a little bit of what God has just been laying on my heart recently. Uh, it's a stemmed from a song I've been listening to. It's an Ed Sheeran song, if you're familiar with Ed Sheeran. Uh, it's a song called I See Fire. And I've been listening to this song a lot. I've been just reflecting on the lyrics, and there's something moving to me about this song. If you've seen the, the Hobbit movies, I believe it's on one of the soundtracks to that, so you, you may be familiar with the song. Uh, but uh, Ed Sheeran in this song talks about this impending fire coming, and this kind of this ominous-sounding song. And, and I've always related with that kind of music, the, the, the darker, dissonant music, because uh, it seems more real to me. I have a hard time with uh, the, the pop, really happy music, because it doesn't seem uh, true to so many life experiences. Yeah, there's something about this song that, that I can relate with. And I just imagine this phrase. He keeps repeating, I see fire. I see fire. And he's describing this, this fire coming and, and what will be their response to it. You know, when fire's coming, how do you respond? And, and it's, a, it's got me thinking that that line, that sentence of seeing fire has a way of clarifying things. I mean, imagine right now, uh, for those of us gathered together in this room, if I'm talking and someone runs in the back and yells, Fire! No matter what you're doing, uh, even if you're half asleep right now already, uh, you're instantly awake, you're standing up, you're looking around, you're looking for smoke, looking for flames, uh, you're going to figure out really quickly what you have to do, because fire has a way of bringing that clarity. 
Uh, if you were in your home tonight and one of your family members in the middle of the night yells fire, instantly you're going to kick into, into motion. You're going to make sure your family is safe. And then, you know, once you had everyone out, you might even think, hey, if I could run in for one last trip, what would I grab? Right? Because it has a way of bringing clarity. What's most important to you? When there's an impending disaster, we, we find out our priorities, don't we? We find out, we can say these things are important to us, but when fire comes, when that moment comes, you begin to see things differently. My wife and I have a running debate, uh, and this stems from a conversation that you hear whenever you fly. Uh, if you've flown in a, a plane recently or in the last few years, uh, they have the safety speech, you know, right when they're, they're getting ready. And of course, we all listen to the safety speech, right, and, and follow along. Uh, and so at the end of the safety speech, they talk about the oxygen mask. And they say something along the lines of, uh, in the event that, you know, we, we, the cabins depressurize, an oxygen mask will fall, and, you know, here's how you do it. And then they'll say something about, if you have someone traveling with you that needs assistance, you have a little child or something, uh, what you got to do is put your mask on first, then assist the, the person that, that needs help. Now, this sounds a little strange to us, I think, uh, because we know logically, okay, yeah, you know, if I'm passed out, I'm not much help to anyone around me. But doesn't it feel a little weird to imagine flying with a, a child or something and, and you're taking care of your mask and they're just looking at you like, I can't breathe. And, and, and that is kind of a, a strange moment. Well, for me, um, it's much easier to live this concept out in, in, our, in my life than it is for my wife. Uh, and I've watched this play out. Like if we go out of town and we want to take the kids on vacation, that is an ordeal to get, you know, a family of six with four little kids. You got to pack them. You got to, you know, think through everything. You got snacks. You got bathroom stuff. I mean, just a lot lot of work just to get out the door uh, with our, our family these days. And so the way this will play out is I'm really good at taking care of my oxygen mask first. So I'll go pack my bag. I'll get all my stuff squared away. And once I've got all my stuff taken care of, I'll go then talk to Michelle and say, hey, uh, what can I help with? You know, I, I'm all ready to go. By that point, she hasn't packed herself a bit. She's been only worried about the family and everyone else. And she'll usually be a little exhausted, a little tired by that point. And, and we affectionately have what we, we call the oxygen mask discussion, right? Where she's like, oh, now, now you're ready to help me because I haven't packed my bag. And so your bag is packed. And now you, you know, and it's like, well, hon, I, I think only one of us was listening on the airplane, right? Like, I, I, I took my cue from it. But, but I, I had no problem taking care of myself first and then thinking about others. For my wife, she's a much more selfless person than me, so it's really difficult for her. She will, you know, stay up to all hours of the night right before we go on a vacation or we travel anywhere because she's worried about everyone else and she's trying to get everything taken care of. So much so, it's become a running joke where she'll get sick whenever we travel because she just runs herself to exhaustion uh, getting everyone ready. And then at the end of all that, we'll finally take a moment to think about herself. And it's a tension, isn't it? Because we wonder, how do I live in such a way that I've taken care of myself enough that I can help the people around me and I can be of help to them? But how do I also not get carried away with that? And how do I, you know, serve those around me? And how do I have something to offer and, and give that to them? And so I want to speak to this tension because I think this tension is at the heart of all of us uh, and anyone who's attempting to follow after Jesus. You've got to have to navigate this tension of how, how do you navigate this? So if you've got your Bibles with you today, I would encourage you to open those up to Matthew chapter 19. Whether you brought a physical Bible with you or maybe you have a, an app on your phone or a device, I encourage you to follow along yourself so you can see uh, the, the, the words of Scripture yourself. And again, you 
that you can read this stuff. You can uh, explore God's word on your own. I just want to highlight some things and connect some dots for you. I want to go through the Gospel of Matthew a little bit and, and show a couple different passages that we normally don't read together. We normally read these one at a time uh, and, and kind of out of the context of the bigger narrative, probably just for the sake of time. But I want to connect some of these dots together and hopefully show you what Matthew is doing uh, that we often overlook because Matthew is going to connect some things as we go through this story. And we're going to start in Matthew 19. Well, while you're turning that, let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, there's this guy that comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the reason he's asking this question, I believe, is because he thinks he's done it. He thinks he's arrived. He's one of those guys that has it all figured out, that at least looks the part. And so everyone else looks at him and goes, oh, I want to be like Joe. I mean, Joe just has it figured out. Look at, look at Joe's life. I mean, he's so spiritual. And so Joe goes to Jesus and goes, hey, what do I need to do? And I think what he's expecting Jesus to say is, Joe, you're doing it. I mean, look at you. Guys, guys, everyone stop, stop, stop. Everyone look at Joe. I mean, Joe is just really an example for us to follow. I think that's what he's expecting. Instead, Jesus looks at this man, knows exactly what's going on in his heart, and says, all right, here's what you need to do. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. Because Jesus knew for this guy, this was his issue. This was not, it's not everyone's issue, this was his issue. And so he could do you know, all these other things, he could follow Jesus in these other ways, but when it came to his stuff, he, he couldn't give it up. And so this man walks away dejected, because he's unwilling to do this. He's unwilling uh, to, to give up everything to the poor and follow Jesus. So in the, in, in the light of that, the, imagine the disciples are all standing around watching this, and they're going, wow. That's, that's a shocking turn of events for this guy. I mean, who would have thought you know, that he would walk away with that? Well, then, right after this, Peter asks a question. Now, again, we have to read this question in the context of what just happened before because it, it triggers why Peter is thinking through this, why he's asking this question. Here's what it says in Matthew 19, verse 27. Peter answered him, uh, We have left everything to follow you. Uh, what then will there be for us? Right? In, in contrast to this guy who just walked away, Jesus, we've done it. We've left it all. What, what do we get? And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now I bet Peter liked this answer. Right? Oh, so Jesus, there's going to be some thrones in your kingdom? Cool. And we get to judge people? That's awesome. I love judging people, you know? I mean, just imagine Peter's going, that's pretty cool. And so you have these disciples who, you know, most of these guys, they're not wealthy individuals. So when they say that they've left everything, they didn't have a whole lot to leave. It wasn't like, oh man, I got this huge empire of wealth that I'm leaving behind. It's like, well, I had a modest living and I left that to follow Jesus. So they're probably thinking in a very logical, practical sense, that was a good trade-off. I mean, we left this little bit of Mount behind, and now we get to be, you know, co-rulers with the coming king. When Jesus overthrows Rome, and there's all these thrones in his kingdom, we get to sit on it with them, and we get to judge Israel. Doesn't that sound great? And I think those guys are going, that's a pretty good trade-off. I'll give up the stuff that I used to have, my old career. I would give that up for, for the opportunity I'm going to have once Jesus becomes king. And they're envisioning something radically different than what Jesus is envisioning and what Jesus is meaning by this statement. And yet, we can understand where they got this from. We can kind of understand that mentality. That they want, you know, what's in it for them. That's where they're thinking. If you fast forward, you go to chapter 20. You see another conversation, a very strange conversation that takes place with Jesus. But again, this is connected to what we see in chapter 19 because this conversation is now in their heads. The seed has been planted and you see the effects of it in the next chapter. Matthew 20, verse 20 says, 
Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, she asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. We heard there's some thrones to go around, and I want my sons to have the places of honor, the most honorable thrones at your right and at your left. Verse 22, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Now, if you're a fan of biblical irony, uh, go ahead and underline that sentence, highlight that sentence. That's an incredible statement from Jesus, as we'll see in just a moment. Uh, But he says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. So this strange conversation. Now, let's imagine this, okay? James and John, is who is in this. We don't, we don't know that from this story, but we can use context clues to figure out who it is. So James and John are two of the 12 disciples. They're there in chapter 19. I don't think their mom is there. They're there in chapter 19. So they hear this conversation, and they're like, hey, there's going to be some thrones in his kingdom. Wouldn't it be cool to have the best ones? Wouldn't it be cool to have the seats right by Jesus? That's a, that's a good idea. Let, let's come up with a way to get it. How do we do that? I know. Let's ask mom. Let's get mom to ask Jesus about it. Oh, that's brilliant. That's awesome. So elementary school style, they send a, you know, a note to the teacher like, hey, um, Jesus, hey, how you doing? Mom, go, go, mom, go. Like nudging their mother to go and have this conversation with Jesus. I don't think she's there in chapter 19. I don't think she heard this. She got, you know, pitched this idea from her sons. She's like, okay, I'll go ask Jesus for you. So the mother comes to Jesus. Now, this is probably a heretical idea. So you might want to plug your ears if you don't like heresy. But I think Jesus probably rolled his eyes from time to time. I know that might be hard for you to picture with a loving Jesus. But I got to imagine, when Jesus sees these these three people walking up and their mom makes this request, he's probably like, uh, you have got to be kidding me. Really, guys? James and John, Really? Your mom? Like, you're going to have your mom come and ask me this. Okay, okay, I, I understand. And they get their mom to ask Jesus this question on their behalf as they stand there next to her. It's an incredible picture. But, but if you look at the Greek, we see something interesting happening. In, in verse 21, um, Jesus is addressing their mother because the, the word there for you in Greek is singular. What is it that you want? It's a singular form of the word you. So he's just talking to the mother. Okay, you're approaching me. What is it you want? But then when he turns in verse 22, he says, you don't know what you're asking that that's the plural form now he's using and saying hey you all boys you don't understand what you just got your mother into you don't understand what you just asked me for and yet they, they think they do they, they think they know and they want what what's coming now again we know this is james and john from context clues but notice the fact that matthew never says their names and notice the way matthew describes this woman he says the mother of zebedee's sons It's a very strange way to describe this lady. He doesn't give us her name. He doesn't say Zebedee's wife, which that would be another way you could say it. He says the mother of Zebedee's sons. It doesn't say James and John. And it's just such a strange way of of almost keeping it intentionally vague. I think the reason Matthew does that is he doesn't want us to, to hear this story and go, oh, I cannot believe those guys can't believe that lady. That's absurd. He wants us to, to connect with this story and go, yeah, I can understand that. Right? Because in that moment, if you see fire, you realize, hey, not all of us might get out of here. Right? If you're on the Titanic and it's going down, how many lifeboats are there? How do I get on one? That's what happens in these moments. You start to go, hey, if there's a limited amount of something, how do I make sure I'm taken care of? How do I make sure I get my oxygen mask on if there's not enough oxygen masks to go around? And so in this moment, they're thinking something that we can relate with. We understand what that feels like. We might not, not like to admit that. 
But we understand what that feels like to go, hey, if there's, if there's only going to be two really good seats, could we get those? Could we be the ones to have those seats? And this is the request that they have of him. Jesus, when you have success, can we share in that with you? Can we have the most success compared to everyone else? Now, whenever you make a request like this, like a conversation like this, it's going to have ripple effects. And so we see that if you keep reading Matthew chapter 20, verse 24, you see the fallout of this. It says, when the ten heard about this, this is the rest of the disciples. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you have the other ten, understandably, irate by this question. But here's the deal. I don't think they're mad at the absurdity of how dare James and John ask that kind of a question. I think the reason they're mad is that they didn't think to ask that question first. I really do. I think they realized, oh man, why didn't we think of that? Of course, in chapter 19, because they they thought in chapters, right? In chapter 19, you know, Jesus was talking about these, these thrones that are coming, and we should have gotten the best ones, and we didn't even ask. Oh, so stupid of us. And they're thinking, man, James and John got it first. You ever had that moment where you watch someone else's success, and you get jealous of it? You go, oh, if I... Man, if I would have worked that hard, if I would have had that opportunity, if I could have just, and you just feel that sense of why is it happening to you? Why did you get the promotion? Why did you get that success? Why did that happen to you? We, we know what that feels like, and that's what they're indignant by. They're going, ah, oh, we missed our chance. And Jesus goes, okay, time out, time out. Let's have a teaching moment here, because you guys are missing the point. And then Jesus says, listen, um, I didn't come to be served by you. I came to serve you. And if you can wrap your mind around this, you can begin to understand the kingdom that I'm establishing here. And yet they don't understand. They're going to miss the point for quite a while until it fully sinks in. You see, success tends to, or sacrifice, excuse me, tends to draw people to us. When we lay down ourselves, it draws people in. That's what Jesus is doing. He's drawing people to himself. But success tends to push people away. So Jesus modeling sacrifice. These guys are flocking to him. Crowds flock to him because we want to be around a person that will sacrifice for us. But here in this moment, when these two brothers who are disciples decide to get get success at all costs, it pushes the other 10 away. That's what success does is it can become a zero sum game for me to win means you have to lose. It's not just about me being the best I can be. No, no, no. Now it's a competition. There's only a limited resource here. I see fire and I have to push you out of the way to get what I want. Success tends to push people away. I will win and you have to lose as a result. I came across a picture uh, recently. It's one of those pictures you just stare at for a while, or at least I do. And I just find myself so intrigued by what's happening in this picture. And I, I want to know more of the context behind this story. Let me show you. This is from 1920. Uh, this is an eight-year-old boy named Samuel Roshevsky. He is a, a, a chess phenom, and he is simultaneously beating an entire panel of chess masters. 
And I look at this picture and there's just something that captures my imagination. This is incredible. This boy who's eight years old is, is simultaneously playing all these guys at once and he's beating them. These are all much older men that he's playing. And the, the, the best part of this picture, if you can see it, look in the top right, the guy that's like holding his hand to his head. That captures what's going on. He's like, this is embarrassing, you know? This eight-year-old boy is owning us right now. How how do we deal with this? There's just something about that. It's like, wow, that's cool. How do you have a person that's that good, that can defy the odds? That is the kind of success that gets us going, that we go, wow, that looks really cool. In describing his playing style, Samuel Roshevsky, the eight-year-old boy, said this. This is when he was older. uh, My strength consists of a fighting spirit, a great desire to win, and a stubborn defense whenever in trouble. I rarely become discouraged in an inferior situation, and I fear no one. That's the heart of a champion, right? Going, hey, bring it on. I'll take on all these older men. I'm not scared, and I'll beat them. And there's just something we go, wow, that is cool. Now, Samuel Shevsky was a, a, a chess phenom as a child. He was a prodigy, but he would continue to play chess the rest of his life. He, he was you know, uh, always at that level. But as he got older there, there also got to be other people that were renowned chess masters that would challenge him. And he developed an insane rivalry with a guy named Bobby Fischer. And Bobby Fischer would play uh, Samuel Shevsky many times. Now, in this picture, Samuel Shevsky is now the older man on the right, and Bobby Fischer is the younger guy on, on the left. And they would play each other often in these tournaments. And usually, Bobby Fischer would have the upper hand. Usually, Bobby Fischer would, would come out ahead. And throughout their, their whole careers, Bobby Fischer would be the one who, who would have the upper hand. And, and Samuel Shevsky, this, this child phenom who was this incredible success, obviously had a hard time with this. He had a hard time dealing with this. And in describing his rivalry with Bobby Fischer, Samuel Roshevsky described it this way. I would settle for 19th place if Fischer placed 20th. (laughs) Isn't that what success does to us? I'm one of the best chess players in the world, but I'll be totally content with 19th place if it meant that Fischer gets 20th. Success tends to push people away. And it tends to cloud what success really means. Because now you have one of the greatest chess players in the world not trying to win and be the, just, the best chess player he can, but all he's trying to do is beat Bobby Fischer, which is not success. See, he loses sight of what success really looks like. To, to be the greatest chess player, you'd have to beat everyone. But he goes, no, no, I'm fine with 19th place. He loses sight of what's important, and that's what success does to us. It begins to cloud us. It begins to confuse us. And it causes us to look at everyone around us as the competition, as the enemy. I have to be better than you. If there's a fire coming and there's limited resources, I have to somehow make sure I'm taken care of. And, and then, uh, you know, you are secondary to that. And yet sacrifice, what Jesus is modeling here, is radically different sacrifice will bring people out of the woodwork because they go, wow, there's something different about you. The way that you make me feel, you make me feel special, you make me feel important when I'm with you. Man, I would be around you all day long. And notice how the people flock to Jesus because he's willing to sacrifice for them. That's the difference here. And this is the kingdom that Jesus is modeling, but it takes the disciples so long to figure this out. And sadly, it takes us just as long to figure out today. That we think, hey, I either have to choose success or choose sacrifice. 
And who wants to choose that? So let's go with success. And then, oh yeah, I'll try to follow God in the process while, while I'm you know, looking for success here. And then we struggle to make sense out of that. And we struggle to live because it's incongruent. It doesn't work together. And remember when Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking? Remember that sentence? He, he meant that. Because when they're going for success, he's going, you have no idea what success looks like for me. You, you, you don't know. They say, oh, well, we know. If you fast forward through Matthew's gospel, you get to the crucifixion of Jesus. And the way Matthew tells it, he includes some details that are important with the verses we've just looked at. Let me show you one. This is at, at the crucifixion scene. Matthew 27, verse 37 says, Above his head, above Jesus' head, they place the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And notice verse 38. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Matthew goes, you want to know what you're asking? That's what you're asking. You want to know what the positions of honor look like in Jesus' kingdom? There's one on his right, there's one on his left, and they're hanging it on a cross. I wonder if James and John knew that, if they'd still ask that question. If they still want that position. I suspect not. And I wonder if today, if we knew what success looked like to Jesus, if we'd want it. But we ask the same thing, if we knew what we were asking, going, Jesus, we were aware of it. We want, to, we want to share in your suffering. We want to drink this cup of suffering with you. We want to sacrifice with you. We want to pour ourselves out with you. Do we really want that? Is that how we're going to view success, or are we going to view it in a different way? See, the kingdom of God has more to do with sacrifice than with success. And in fact, they go together. That, that when you choose sacrifice, you begin to experience success in Jesus' eyes, the way Jesus has instructed us to live, invited us to live. But the problem is, that doesn't capture our imagination quite like success does. See, we, we like to be the eight-year-old child prodigy who's defeating you know, the, the chest busters. That captures something inside of us. We don't want to be the guy hanging on the cross next to Jesus. That doesn't you know, stir this emotions going, oh, I wish I had that opportunity. There's something that success begins to distort what is really most important. And you look in our culture in America today, and people go, oh, yeah, you can have both. You can just mix those together. But what success tends to do is it, it, it changes what's most important. And then we start trying to look the part more than be the part. We start worrying about what we look like, not who we are. And Jesus is always interested in who we are more than what we, our reputation looks like. Going, hey, what kind of a person are you becoming? I came across this picture that I think captures our culture today. Stare at that for a moment. The question is, which one would you rather be? Would you rather be the one that looks really good, that everyone looks at and goes, wow, what a success you are. You are so great. You have accomplished so much, and yet there's nothing else there. Or would you rather be the person that's got incredible character, that has the life of Jesus flowing out of him or out of her, and yet you may not look as impressive to other people? Which one do we want? So you begin to see how much you value success as you consider the options. Because we want both. We want to be wildly impressive to everyone and be the person God has called us to be. And maybe it won't be the same. In fact, maybe they're opposite desires. So how do we reconcile what it is that's most important to us? Success has a way of deluding us. And we talk about this idea of fire and the clarity it brings. Uh, it, it plays out in community, which is what the church is called to be. It plays out in community in different ways. Because sometimes the fire comes for me, sometimes it comes for people around me. 
Sometimes I'm dealing with a fire in my life and I go, wow, okay, how am I going to figure this out? And the oxygen mask, I got to take care of myself and you and I got to figure that out. Other times it's, it's the people around me. So you might be, you know, listening today, wherever you are, and you might be going, hey, you know what? Uh, my life's pretty good right now. I don't need to worry about this. I'm not dealing with a fire. And if that's you, I would say, then look around you. Because the people in your life are likely dealing with a fire of their own. Will you sacrifice yourself on their part? Will you invest yourself in what their fire is? Or do you just care when the fire hits you? Because part of living in community is understanding fire is a way of life. And kingdom people just lean into it because we understand that, hey, it's, we're expecting this. See, oftentimes we go, hey, when I follow Jesus, shouldn't everything get figured out for me? Shouldn't the fire go away? Isn't Jesus like a great fire extinguisher? The answer is no. No, he's not. And in fact, Jesus is kind of an arsonist. Sometimes he'll light the fires in your life. And you're going, well, Jesus, why are you doing this? He's like, hey, I've got something bigger that I'm, I'm producing in you that people might not even see, but I, I want to do a great work in you. If you keep going in Matthew's gospel, as he is describing the crucifixion scene, he again includes another detail that if you just read it by itself, you just gloss over and think that's not important. But with what we've just seen, notice this. Matthew 27, verse 55. Many women were there watching from a distance. They're watching the crucifixion from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Remember her? The one who asked Jesus for the places of honor for her, her sons, the right and the left. Matthew makes sure we know that she's there watching the crucifixion. She's, she's watching what those places of honor actually look like. And I bet as a mother she was going, thank you, Jesus, that my sons aren't there. Because I didn't know what I was asking. I had no idea. I thought it was something completely different. And yet her sons would eventually understand what Jesus was about. When they saw the sacrificial act of Jesus on the cross, of God incarnate pouring himself out for us, of God revealing what he's really like, it clicks for them. They go, that's what he was talking about. That is what his kingdom looks like. And eventually they, they began to understand. And so we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, it says, he had James, says Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. That's one of the two men in chapter 19 had him put to death with the sword now his brother john would also uh, church tradition holds that they attempted to kill him um, but he, he lived to be an older man and, and died in old age and so when jesus says can you drink the cup of suffering that i drink they say oh yeah we can uh, at least one of them would go and, and actually do that because eventually they got it but as christians we have to understand fire happens Fire is a part of following Jesus. And if you are only worried about success, you will run whenever you see fire. But if you understand, hey, sometimes you're going to find God in the midst of the fire, you look at it differently in your life. And you never know. You can wake up today, you wake up tomorrow, and you go, hey, it's going to be a great day. And then, bam, fire hits you. I had this happen to me a couple months ago. We were uh, hanging out as a family upstairs in our house, and uh, we were in our bedroom. Michelle and I were doing some cleaning, and our kids are running around, and, and they're playing upstairs with us. And again, it's a little, a little chaos, but uh, they're having fun. They're running around, and they're, they're doing their thing while we're cleaning. Well, at one point, uh, one of my sons is playing under, you know, is like crawling underneath our bed, and, and he grabs a, a ring underneath the bed, and he goes to my wife. And he says, hey, mommy, I found your ring, and he hands her the ring. She looks at the ring, and she goes, that's not my ring. Then she looks at me and says, Jeremy, whose ring is this? And let me tell you what, in that moment, I see fire, right? 
I don't know whose ring that is. Why, why would there be a, a female's ring underneath our bed? I don't know. I don't know why that would be. You know, and I've got nothing to hide, but I got no explanation for this question. And so I'm looking at her, and we have this weird like standoff where I'm like, I don't know. And she's even saying, look, I got no reason not to trust you, but this is a little strange. You'll agree. And I'm like, yeah, I'll agree. So then I start going, well, hun, it looks like a ring you'd have. You know, like, I, I think it could be your ring. She's like, this is not my ring. Okay, well, um, let's go ahead and start figuring that out then. So we start texting out girls in our life group because we have people in our house all the time. And sometimes when our life group meets, the girls will go upstairs, the guys will meet downstairs. So it's not uncommon for all the girls in our life group to be upstairs in our bedroom. And I said, hey, that makes logical sense. Maybe it's one of them. And when you guys were having life group upstairs, they left the ring there. She goes, okay. So she texts all the life group girls and says, hey, you know, pick picture of the ring. Is this any of your, your ring? I'm crossing my fingers going, please, Lord, let them say yes. Nobody replies with an affirmative. Nope, not a ring, not a ring, not a ring. This is getting bad for me. And so day after day goes by. This is a tension in our household of whose ring is this? And so we start going to line. Well, maybe it's so-and-so. Let's, let's ask anybody that's ever been to our house in the last six months, you know, and maybe they left the ring somehow upstairs. So we start going to line and nobody has the ring. And then people start feeling bad for me because again, you know, I'm, I'm left with like, I don't know. So my mom is like having conversations with my wife and she's like, Michelle, that is your ring. I've seen you wear that ring, you know? And Michelle's like, it is not my ring. I can relate with James and John, you know, having your mom come to your aid. It's, it works, you know? My mom's like, Michelle, that is your ring. And she's like, it's not my ring. So we have, I mean, it's just tense. And like day after day of this, and you're like, what are we going to do here? And, and it's just a fire in my life. And I was like, I don't know, but we need to resolve this somehow because this is bad. And so the ring was just placed on our kitchen counter as like a dark omen over our family. And so we just walked by every day. It's like, oh, Jesus, please. I need to know whose ring is this, you know? And it's just this, this thing plaguing our family. Finally, a week and a half later, one day we have this company that comes out and cleans our house once or twice a month. And, and the lady comes, she goes, oh, you found my ring. Oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Finally, we resolved this thing. But I'll tell you what, this was tense. And this was a, a delicate situation to navigate. And yet that is life. And, and that's kind of a humorous one. Looking back now, it's a little bit humorous, you know. But there are moments where you're going to experience a fire that's not funny. And you're going to have to decide, are you going to run? And you're going to try to preserve yourself at all costs? Or are you going to lean in and say, you know what? I'm just going to sacrifice my way through it. I'm going to be the type of person that's going to just give to others. And there's going to be all sorts of fires. And there's going to be people around you right now in your life that if you would ask, if you would look into, if you would care enough, you would find out they're experiencing some incredible fire in their life. And will you sacrifice for them? Will you get involved? Will you get into the weeds, into the messiness with them and go, you know what? I'll be there with you. I'll be involved with this because it matters. See, as I think about this story uh, told in Matthew, the conclusion I come to is that kingdom people choose sacrifice. Now, the world chooses sacrifice when success is taken from them, right? If, If success is robbed of me and I can't have it, then okay, I guess I'll embrace the sacrifice, but not kingdom people. Kingdom people choose it. You know what? I could, I could pursue this. I could pursue that. And I'm going to pursue sacrifice. I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to choose this. 
Because I understand the type of kingdom that Jesus was creating. I'm not going to confuse it with the American culture and the American dream. Uh, I'm not going to merge those together. I'm going to understand, you know what, that's a different type of success. The success for me is going to be sacrificing for this other kingdom. And you begin to see Jesus in your midst. I want to read a quote. This comes from a guy named Steve Kimes. And this is such a powerful image to me. that, that It's kind of a litmus test for, for how we are doing. He says, the Bible was written by and for those who were oppressed. Of course, we have some exceptions, such as Solomon, who whines about how life should be but isn't. And it's interesting that even David, who was a powerful king, has most of his published work from times in which he was vulnerable and powerless. This is one of the secrets of the Bible, frankly. Most people born in the human race feel helpless and frail in the midst of powerful forces. And the Bible communicates to these people. And then notice this line. If there is a lack of interest in the Bible, it is really only among those who feel in control of their lives. That is a haunting sentence. If there's a lack of interest in those things that Jesus taught, it's really from people who feel like they're in control, who feel like they could be successful, they have what they need. They don't need Jesus, right? But if we want to be the type of people that go, wow, no, we, we, we get a lot out of that, and we, we understand it, we respond to that, it's because we embrace sacrifice. We lean into sacrifice. We don't lean out of it. We go, hey, this is, this is going to be success for me. And it's a completely different way of living. And I don't know about you, but I, when I die, I, I want to die and, and, and feel like, you know what, I, I spent my life well. That I will be remembered long beyond me because it wasn't just about me. I, I want to leave a legacy behind. People go, wow, we are better off because of his investment. That's the kind of life I want to live. And if you think about you know, being remembered, there's two ways you could be remembered after you're dead. One would be to be so wildly successful that you have plaques and trophies and statues and honors and people remember you because, wow, look what he accomplished. Look what she did in her life. It's incredible. It's remarkable. That's one way for people to remember you. And that's the way most of the world tries to live. I want to be remembered for my success. Or you can say, you know what? I want to be remembered for my sacrifice. I'm going to so pour myself out for other people that they will never forget me. They'll never forget the way I made them feel. They'll never forget the way they saw Jesus in me because of the illogical way that I treated them. And if you want to be that kind of person, people will never forget you. As a case in point, let me close with one final story. Ten years ago, I went on a, a mission trip with our church to Nepal. And Nepal is a, uh, a Hindu culture. And so you, you see the way it, uh, the Hindu religion, um, Hinduism, the way, the way that plays out in, into the society, and it's completely different than what you can even imagine. Up is down, left is right. I mean, it's just very different. And so we were going through, and, and each day, having these different encounters with people, and just, I mean, God was opening my eyes to all sorts of new things. And one of the, the parts of this journey is we didn't have, you know, American conveniences. So uh, at the one point in the, in the journey, I hadn't showered for days. I mean, just we didn't have showers around. So I'm starting to smell a little ripe, you know, and I'm just getting out there, and we're just roughing it, and that's what we were doing. And we're walking almost everywhere we're going. So one day, the agenda for that day was to go and visit a, a children's orphanage in, in Nepal. Now, again, understand, um, it's, it's a sad thing to see an orphanage in America. It's way worse in, in Nepal because here you have these kids who are living in poverty. They only have the clothes that they're wearing. That's all the, that's all the possessions they have. They get you know, fed a meager amount of food a day. And then what's most sad is that there are not enough adults to even uh, interact with these children. So these children grow up with little to no adult interaction. Little to no interaction with, with adults 
speaking into their life, giving them value, uh, raising them, you know, mentoring them. None of that. They just don't have that attention from adults. So when our trip arrived, and we've got probably uh, ten of us on, on our trip, and, and you know, we're all adults, and we arrive, and these kids lit up. I mean, to have adults that would play with them, that would interact with them. And again, we didn't even speak the same language, so we, don't, we can't communicate, but we were just playing games with them, and the joy on their faces was unlike anything else I've ever seen. I just thought, what an incredible opportunity to, to have this moment and to give this gift to these children who, man, they, they, just, they don't have this. There's nothing like this. Now, we're running around, we're playing, and in the room that we were, there's no air conditioning. So I start sweating, it gets really hot, really muggy, we're, you know, I'm wrestling with kids, and I, I'm, I can smell myself at this point, you know what I mean? Like, I haven't showered in days, I am sweating profusely, it's not a good thing. And so I decide at one point, I'm going to go sit down and, and cool off a little bit, calm down, because, you know, it's, it's just getting really kind of nasty. So I go to the back, and I'm sitting down, and I'm just dripping with sweat, but I, I, I just feel content, I feel happy, I'm like, this is such an incredible experience for me. So I'm watching the rest of our group playing with these kids kids. Well, as I'm sitting in the back, I'm just sitting there watching this. This little girl walks up to me and she stands right in front of me and just looks at me face to face. Now, again, we don't speak the same language. So I have no idea what she's thinking. I can't communicate to her. I'm just looking at her like, what's going on? And she looks at my face and she just sees me. Again, I'm just dripping with sweat. She takes her little hands, begins to wipe the sweat off my face with her hands. Now, as an American... My initial response was to pull back from this because you don't want to touch that. It's gross. I'm sweaty. But I I realize that's exactly what she's trying to do. She's trying to wipe the sweat off my face. And it was such a disarming moment to have this little girl treat me in this way. And again, not saying anything to me. We can't speak the same language. So she wipes the sweat off my face. Her hands are full of of my sweat. Then she takes a step back and she looks at me. And she realizes something that I realized years ago. You are never going to make this face look good, right? (laughs) So she's looking at me, and she's not content with her efforts. So she's standing there with her hands sweaty, and then she walks back up to me, takes her dress, the only piece of clothing she owns, and begins to wipe the sweat off my face with her dress. Now at this point, it's not just sweat, it's dirt. It's a week's worth of traveling all around. It takes the only dress she owns and wipes all of it onto her dress. I will remember this moment till the day I die. In fact, this was 10 years ago. I can remember it as vividly as if it was yesterday. Because that is the power of sacrifice. This little girl had no money, no prestige, no fame, no title, no authority, no standing in the culture. She had nothing. But she gave everything she had at a beautiful moment of sacrifice. And I will never forget that. I will never forget how humbling it felt. I will never forget how loved I felt from this other person that I, have, I don't know her name. I will never see her again in my life. And yet she has left a lasting mark on me. That is what happens when we live a life of sacrifice. When we choose to pour ourselves out for those around us, when we understand the type of kingdom that Jesus is creating, that is what it produces. And that is the invitation for all of us today. You can pursue success. You can get caught up in the rat race of everyone else and you will push people aside in the process. Or you can say, Jesus, we understand the kingdom you invite us to. And you can pour yourself out for others. You can change people's lives. You can change people's stories forever. And you will be filled up 
with the love and power of the Spirit of God in the process. And that is the invitation for all of us. I'm going to pray in just a moment. Our band is going to come back up and lead us in a few worship songs. And what we're going to do next is we're going to collect an offering. And this is a great way to practice what we just talked about. Because it's so easy to say, yeah, I believe in sacrifice. Uh, I'll choose sacrifice um, when I'm at church or when these little windows of time, then, then I'll do it. But if you really understand what Jesus is inviting us to, it becomes who we are. We just become people of sacrifice. That no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, we choose sacrifice. Which means when it comes to our finances, we give sacrificially. See, most people either don't give, or the ones that do give, they give out of the excess. I have a little bit extra, I'll give that. But kingdom people give out of sacrifice. And so I just ask, do you give in such a way where you can't buy certain things, you can't do certain things that you could do, but you can't do those anymore because you have given so much so that now uh, you, you can't do it that way. You have to readjust because you are sacrificially giving. That's the kind of sacrifice that kingdom people do. And it, it's, it's always got to cost us something for it to be a sacrifice. That little girl, it cost her something. She tainted her dress with my sweat, with, with just my filth on my face because she wanted to give me a gift. And that's why the sacrifice was so moving. And the invitation is the same when it comes to our giving. Do we give sacrificially that it cost us something? And are we willing to experience God in this way? I pray that you are because you will see a beauty unlike anything else. You will see God tangibly in our midst when we experience him through sacrifice. Let's pray together. Father, as we see James and John dramatically change their opinion of what success looks like in your kingdom, may you bring us on that same journey. Many of us want to be successful the way the world would describe being successful. And yet you invite us to redefine success, to view success as our willingness to sacrifice, to serve those, to pour ourselves out to those around us. And when we do that, not only do we see your beauty in our midst, but we get to be filled up by you, not from what we could do, but from the outpouring of your spirit in our lives. God, may we who are gathered here today and anyone watching online, may we be that kind of a church. May we be those kind of Christians who follow you through sacrifice, who experience you through sacrifice, and we watch you do incredible things in our midst. And we live the type of lives that people will talk about long after we're gone because we were able to do something incredibly illogical and beautiful. God, may we experience you through sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.